0: Good. Go ahead and open up your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 today, which is where we'll be. I have been meaning to say this for the last probably month now as I've watched Brian Stahl do our What's in the Box podcast. Moments on Sunday mornings. And you should know that in my first week when I got here, and in the week before I got here, everybody kept saying, Is this Aaron guy going to continue doing what's in the box? And I said, Absolutely, so long as Brian does it and he's done a really good job. And the two thoughts that have gone through my mind um, was, first, I had, it took me about like three or four weeks ago to realize he was making it up on the spot. I thought this guy was just had these great ideas every single time, you know, deodorant or uh, a tractor or something came out of that box. He's making it up on the spot. So I was incredibly impressed when I discovered that. The second thing that surprised me um, the second thing that surprised me was that every time I hear him say, what's your favorite part of the service, no one has yet to say the sermon. And <laughs> my hope is today we're doing communion, as you can see, and so the sermon is going to be shorter uh, maybe next week because of that. Someone will say the sermon was their favorite part, but um, we're in Philippians two twelve. Let me read for us the passage and then we'll pray. Philippians 2 12 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. You have so much for us in your word. My prayer this morning is that as we get into the text of Philippians, would you take something that maybe is minor in what I say and make it major in somebody's life? Would you take what is major in this passage and make it true for all of our lives as well? Um, Spirit, we are relying on your guidance. Uh, Lord, I give my, my vocal cords to you. I give my, my voice to you. Um, let it make it through these next few moments, and let it herald what is true that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Okay, here we go. So if you look at the first two verses there, um, I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of what's going to happen. So you look at the first two verses, that first command is there, and it's pretty clear, work out your salvation, right? If you look at verse 14, look at that uh, real quickly with me. Verse 14 begins, and it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so verse 14 going on to 18 is that second point. So really, we're going to look at kind of two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And on the other hand, work out your salvation without grumbling or disputing. And that's really what's going to guide us today. So let's look at that first one. You notice how verse 12 begins, and it begins by saying, Therefore... Now, if you've taken a Bible class, or if you've uh, read a book on how to read the scriptures, you've inevitably come up against this point, that therefore, that word is important. So you, you should always be asking, what is the therefore there for, right? And so if you go back, and we'll go back even further, go back to verse 27 of chapter 1. We had said a few weeks ago, if you were with us, that Paul begins, he shifts from talking about his own circumstances to talking about uh, the Philippians and their circumstances. And he gets some commandments, some exhortations, and he begins by saying, I want you to live as worthy citizens. You remember that? Worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of heaven, so that you would be worthy citizens in the kingdom of Rome in the land of Rome, so that you would be the kind of people that could push back the darkness. We talked about how the pagan Philippians had their own darkness that they had, and the Philippians had to push that back. But for us in our day, we talked about some ways that we have to push back about how the world incorrectly sees the dignity of what it means to be man and woman. We talked about that. And then Paul continues on. He says, look, I want you to stand firm, And that took us into chapter two. And in chapter two, Paul says, look, you gotta stand firm dealing with the problems from outside, but you gotta also remember, take care of what's in your own house, right? Look at what's right in here. And so I want you to be unified. And you can't be unified together if you're not humble. And I know of no better example, Paul says, of humility than the coming down from heaven, God in the flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He dies, he resurrects, when he goes back to his father, he's declared that he is Lord. And so Paul says, I want you to be unified through humility. And so through the example of Christ, unified, standing firm, worthy citizens. And therefore, because of all of these things, Paul says, therefore, live as people who are called to obedience, working out your salvation, with fear and trembling. So that's how he gets us started this morning. So what that means is everything that's been said up to this point is leading to the application of what we're looking at today. And so that call to obedience, you notice how it's described by working out your salvation with what? I would expect Paul to say, wouldn't you expect this after everything that we've looked at, that he would say, work out your salvation with joy? That's what I would have expected him to say. But he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I don't think you can fully understand that, the sense of fear and trembling, unless you go back to Scripture. They say, the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord all about? You read the book of Proverbs, the first page in the book of Proverbs in 1. six or 1. seven gives the thesis statement, and it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 9.10 says the same thing. You get to 19.23. And, and, and it continues on saying, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And so there's this connection between, on the one hand, knowledge and wisdom, and then on the other hand, the fearing of the Lord. You notice that positive connection, right? I mentioned this last week that I'm the kind of guy that likes to think about deep things, but also pictures are really helpful to fully grasp uh, deep concepts in Scripture. We looked at how last week, Jesus is both man, and yet he's both God, right? And a great picture of that is you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, where this man from Galilee goes up, and you see the curtain pulled back, and he's fully divine as well. Let me give you another picture this week, when we consider what it means to fear the Lord, If you go to the, you don't have to go there, you can if you want. If you go to the story of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, you know where I'm going if you've read this passage before and it's really hit you. In Isaiah 6, the prophet of God has a vision. And in that vision, it says this, that the Lord was sitting upon a throne. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there's a description of how there's angels that are around the Lord, and they have their eyes covered by the, their wings, and they're crying out saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what they're crying out. R.C. Sproul, in his book, uh, The Holiness of God, describes the angels' worship. And here's what he says. He says, talking about the holy, holy, holy aspect. Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is holy, or even that he is holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath justice, 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 it does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is filled or full of his glory. And so knowing that, what do you think Isaiah says upon seeing the Lord, hearing the angels say, holy, 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 do you think he goes, oh, hey, God, how are you? You know, he doesn't do that, right? He, he trembles, and this is what the, the prophet of God, the, the supposedly the most holy one, pure one in Israel, this is what Isaiah says. He says, "'Woe is me, for I am lost.'" Other translations say, "'Ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts.'" So you keep reading the story, what you find out is that one of the angels actually takes um, a coal, a hot coal, and, and puts it onto Isaiah's lips and sears his lips. And you go, why does he do that? Well, because it symbolizes purifying of his lips. Because Isaiah had realized when he had confronted the Lord Almighty, he saw how holy and perfect and pure and white, hot, awesome is he, and I use that word awesome not in the way we use it, but incredible and he then realized, how sinful am I? And so the angel takes that coal, puts it on his mouth, purifies his lips, and so that the man of God who's supposed to speak on behalf of God is now equipped and is able to do so. And so I think of this question, some, a question I've asked, I'm sure that you've asked, is have you ever gone to the Lord and said, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Well, when you think of this passage, you go... Well, if he does reveal himself to you, you're going to see how much of a sinner you actually are, right? You're going to see how inadequate you are. Careful, he's holy. To fear the Lord is to shudder, to tremble. You are utterly defenseless before him. I'll give you maybe one sentence. Put it like this, and I'll say it slow because I think some people had said, say it slowly so I can write it down. Here you go. To fear God is to be an utter awe of his majesty. To fear God is to be in utter awe of his majesty in the face of your fallenness, in the face of your fallenness. You see him, and it reveals a whole lot about you, right? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that for some of us, the reason why we haven't gotten over our chronic sin that we should have moved past, we should should know better by now, we just haven't moved past it, is because we haven't really learned what it means to fear the Lord. Is it possible that for some of us, most of us, all of us, um, we have that thing in our lives that, man, you knew where you were five years ago and you just haven't progressed. Is it possible for you that you haven't developed a right view of God and have learned to respect him? realizing the one that you've offended in your sin. This is why I think it's so important for us to do the work of theology, that work of kind of hammering our, our beliefs you know, to the wall and saying, this is what I believe because one day, I gotta rightly know God because one day I'm gonna stand before him and have you thought about this? Remember the first time someone said this to me. We're all gonna have to give an account for how we lived our lives before the Lord. We're gonna have to give an account before him. We should rightly know who he is. And it's at this point, I think of some people I've come across who go, oh, I'm not really into theology. I just want to focus on my relationship with Jesus. And I go, fine. Okay, I get it. You'll never hear me undermine the importance of having your relationship with Christ. You'll never hear me undermine the importance of having a relationship with Jesus. But for some Christians, I do wonder that the way you talk about Jesus or the way they talk about Jesus so carelessly with no understanding of what Scripture actually says about him, like could you even pick him out in a crowd if you had to, right? Like we talk so much about having a relationship with Jesus, but part of developing a relationship with others, whether it's friends or your spouse or with your Lord, is that you grow in getting to know him in his word. You must know him. So when you put it all together, When he brings you to tremble before him, you are called to rightly work out your salvation with a healthy dose of fear and trembling. And when you do it, you rightly see who you are in light of who your maker is. And then when you have that moment, you realize who he really is, that he's holy and you don't deserve him. Then consider this thought. He loves you. He is gracious towards you. He doesn't let go of you. What a God, right? And here's what he does graciously through you. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you when you obey. So yes, I am actually saying that when you obey, God is affecting the obedience in you. Every time. Are you called to obey? Yes. But does he do the work in you? Oh yes, as well. Let me show you, I think, what I mean by this concept of God working in you and you working out your salvation, really in just a question. You ready for the question? It's this. How do you castrate cattle to the glory of God? Put the picture up on the screen if you would. Thank you. So... Brother Leroy, wherever you are, I figured out how to work it into the sermon. Here it is. So um, a few weeks ago, actually at the beginning of my time here, I started saying to the the farmers, I said, would you take me out to where you work? Because it'll be very helpful for me to see what you do and to get to know you. There was a pastor I know, uh, Justine's home church pastor um, at the time, Dick Nickel. I called him up. He'd been a minister for about 30, 40 years here in South Dakota. And I said, Dick, tell me, what do I do? do as a pastor now in this context he says you can't expect for the farmers for them to come to you you got to go to them and sit on the combine and get to know them and talk and talk with them uh, about what's going on in their lives and so uh, that's exactly what I had in mind and so uh, I called I I called up a few guys and said would it be possible and then finally uh, Matt Magnus Jared Fast said yes I had in mind sitting on a combine Uh, they had something else uh, completely in mind And so, uh, mom and dad, if if that makes you uncomfortable that we're talking about about this topic, uh, I just refer you to Philippians 3.2. We're talking uh, about, in a little week, male circumcision. So it's just going to get worse. But we went out there and... They're on four wheelers, and I'm in Jared's truck. And they gather all the cattle together, and they put them in a pen. And and to kind of shorten up the story, they take the bulls out, they take the moms out, and so it's just the the calves left. And then there's a machine, I forget what it's called, but basically it it pins these the the boys and the girls down so that they can put the growth give their 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 shots, their growth hormones, and some some other stuff to keep the flies off and then they fixed the boys and that lasted I was there for about two hours as they did that they continue doing that and then they went to another location to continue that work and I thought one you know that is a lot of work just it's good to see what what people in our church do we have hard workers um, but the second thought I kept asking myself for the last two weeks I've been thinking like what eternal benefit does Castrating cattle serve, right? Like, what does what is, what is this serve in the kingdom of God? Like, how does this glorify God? And here's what I came up with. Uh, here's what I came up with. In your obedience to God, from the really spiritual things, teaching a Sunday school class or, you know, praying or something like that, to the mundane things, right? Whether you are teaching a Sunday school class, changing a diaper, Caring for your sick spouse, or castrating cattle, and you are doing those things to the glory of God. It is evidence that God is working through you. And so, as I'm sitting in my office this week, and I'm taking a phone call, or I'm writing up an email, and I'm doing it not for my own selfish benefit, but I'm doing it because because I'm being faithful to Him. I put down the phone, or I finish the email and press send, and I go, "Huh, He's working through me." Little mundane things that nobody else sees. So. Keep these thoughts in your head. The next time you obey the Lord, and it's not for your own selfish benefit, but it's for the glory of God, one, you obey, and when you obey, you realize, you recognize he's working through you. And then third, not only that, when he works through you, it's bringing your Lord pleasure. Think of all the things you did this last week. It pleases the Lord to do those things through you if it's for the glory of God. The evidence of God's favor that he has not forgotten you is the fact that he takes that work that he started in you, continues that work, he will bring it to the end, and he's doing it now through your obedience. I think it's a wonderful thing if you really think about it. One more word to point out in this section. You notice that he says, work out your salvation. Your salvation. Now, in the English, we hear that and we can go, that's either one person, your salvation, or you hear that and you can go, that's everybody's salvation. Uh, There is actually a word in English that helps, uh, that you don't have to use. Uh, The Texan says, it's y'all. And so you say, work out all y'all's salvation. That would be a much easier way to understand it. It is a corporate concept. It's corny, I know, but do you understand what I'm saying? And so, once again, we're back at the need for church unity here. There's not a New Testament concept for someone who is a believer in Christ, and yet, They're not a part of the church. You're not gonna see that in the New Testament. Someone who's a believer in Christ is part of the local body. And if you'll just led to keep going here, I wanna go after chronic sin. I wonder if for some of us who are attenders, but not members, the reason why we haven't gotten past some of our chronic sin is because nobody really knows you. Nobody really knows what you're going through. You show up to church, and then right after church, you're out of here. And no one really knows what you're going through. Is it possible that another reason why you haven't gotten past some of those sins is because, or those habitual sins, is because you've never opened yourself up to accountability to the local church and submitted yourself to authority to a church that says we love you and we want to walk alongside of you. I keep saying this week after week, and it bears repeating. You are never meant to do the Christian journey by yourself. And so if you need help, this is what we are, are here for. Talk to someone, join the family, and let's fight that good fight together. Okay? Verse 14 continues on. It says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. So if I said on the, on, the, on the one hand, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, on the other hand, work out your salvation, that, that part where it says right there, do all things, that's continuing to work out your salvation without grumbling or disputing. No grumbling, no disputing is what Paul says. Um, but here's what I know. You stick around church long enough, there's going to be a lot of reasons to complain. Okay, And so there's one commentator who puts it like this. Maybe you can relate to this. It says, complaining is a temptation of anyone in a local church because people often can't live up to the expectations of others. I will disappoint you at some point if I haven't already, okay? At some point, the pastors, the small group leaders, the singers, the greeters, or your accountability partner will disappoint you. What will you do? You will be tempted to complain. You ever see that person who shows up to church, I've seen this happen many times, someone who shows up to church and immediately, maybe things didn't end too well at the last church they were at, and immediately they want to get involved, start serving, they're passionate, they're full of ideas, they want to share them, and they go deep quickly. And then after a certain while, give it maybe about two, three, four years, eventually frustrations well up, and they pull back, and eventually they leave your church, and they go and repeat the cycle somewhere else. It's just this process of replanting and replanting. This person flames out quickly because they weren't prepared for long obedience in the same direction. Yesterday, I was uh, here at the office for a bit, and I was sitting with uh, Lori, and we were thumbing through uh, the church directory from 1991 and 2004. And many of your pictures are in there. And I just want to say, if you're an elder or a deacon, don't cross me. I've got I've got blackmail on all y'all. I can put it up here on the screens. And so, in love, of course. And so, anyways, I was just thinking about that, and I thought, what a wonderful thing. To be a part of one family for decades on end. What merit is there to that? Of just of saying, I'm going to stick around. Look, if you're the kind of person that y- you've been that replanting and replanting. Here's what I know. It's not good for the soil. And if it's not good for the soil, it's not good for your own soul. If that describes you. I want you to know that we here at Bethesda are more concerned about your soul than we are of the circulation of the saints, of going from one place to another. And so maybe, perhaps, your tendency to complain that led to division at the last last place, God is calling you here today to hear this, that you are to put grumbling and disputing in your life to death so that you would be a blessing here. I'll let the Spirit do what he needs to do. I don't know if you need to go back and tell someone, hey, I repent. I don't know if, man, I know we're in a culture that always wants the churches to be bigger and better, but maybe you need to go back. I don't know. I'll let the Holy Spirit do what he needs to do. But for all of us, I wanna promise you something. You are gonna be disappointed by someone at some point in the church. It's not a matter of if, but when. The honeymoon will end. And the question is: Are we going to complain and dispute among one another like the people in First Corinthians did, where they had divisions and disunity? Just look at First Corinthians one. You see, some follow one group, some follow another group. Will we be like the women in Philippians four two? Uh, you will see that in a few weeks. There's two women. Paul calls out specifically, and those and those women are called to get along with one another. So here's what I can say: If I could give you a remedy for. Sick, uh, for the sickness of complaining and disputing, whether it's over church things or whether it's personal things that are going on in your life, I, I think the remedy for complaining and disputing is one word: gratitude. Gratitude. Do you find your kids to be incredibly challenging in the season? How wonderful is it that you have children? When I know people who have not never been able to have kids. Do you not like the home that you're in? Thank the Lord that you have a roof over your head. Are, are, are you frustrated about this thing? Look and see what the Lord has given you. But praise God for what he has done, and don't forget it. It ought to lead to this mentality when you realize what he has done spiritually in your life, where you can say, like, like some of my friends here, when someone says, how are you doing? And you can say, well, I'm doing better than I deserve, because you know what the Lord has done in your life. So man, never mind who gives a a rip that my food didn't show up on time or that some person didn't recognize me or whether I didn't get what I wanted and know that I'm preaching this to myself right now. We've all been delivered by the Lord from from hell so that we would live in eternity with Christ. You can't take that away from me. It doesn't get better than that. That's the hope that I have. And so let us be the kind of people that when we see complaining in God's church or we see it in our families, that we stop it with gratitude for what the Lord has done in our life. Look and see the past and what he's done. And the purpose of that, the purpose of this mindset of working out our salvation in these ways, Paul says, he continues on in, in, in verse 16, he says that it's that we are going to be the kind of people that are blameless so that we are prepared for the day of the Lord, Isn't it an incredible thought to think that actually refining your speech is getting you ready to meet Jesus? And the reason for that is because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if I'm revisiting and revisiting, why am I naturally an angry person? Why do I lash out at this person whom I love? Why do I say those things that I know I shouldn't? When you keep revisiting that, it's going to get down into your heart and go, well, maybe I have some problems in here that are leading to me lashing out or saying these things that I shouldn't. Maybe what's really down here is I don't trust God's word. And so I have anxiousness all the time. And so when I'm confronting with that, confronted with that problem, I just get angry. Your problem isn't your anger, friend. It's a problem with the heart. And it might be because you don't trust the Lord. And so that process where the Lord keeps working that out in your life, he's getting you ready to meet Jesus. Wes, you've told me this, that you love this passage in, in uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And I want to repeat it again here. I think we did it a few weeks ago. But it's worth saying again. And it's my prayer that, you lo- that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's getting you ready, friend. He's getting me ready. And so if that is true, verse 17, Paul continues on. And he, and he says a few other things to us. Uh, I just point this out again here. You notice how he had said in 127, where we started a few weeks ago, how he shifted to talk about the Philippians. Now he's shifting back to talk about his own situation. Look at this. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. On the one hand, Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm living in prison right now, but the Lord is working. On the other hand, you are the sacrificial offering of your faith. Philippians, your faith is costing you something as well. And when we put it together, Paul had said earlier, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now here that I still have. They're working on this thing together. It may bring suffering. It may bring challenges, but they're not giving up. My mother is a marathon Um, Oh, oh, she's a runner. She's done all sorts of marathons. She's done an Ironman, um, which is just incredible, Um, at almost age 60. I think she did last year, so she was 59. And she tells me about the the challenges that she faces when she's riding a bike, or uh, the weather conditions, or when she's running or swimming. And I just imagine two runners at the end of a marathon of 26 miles and they're on mile 25, and they're running, and maybe sleet is coming down, and, and they have pain in their legs, they're exhausted, they're tired, they want something to drink, and they're running, and one looks at the other and goes, are you giving up? And the other goes, I'm too crazy, I'm not giving up. Are you gonna give up? And they're going back and forth. I just have that picture in my mind, the way Paul and the Philippians are. I'm not giving up if you don't give up. You don't give up, so I don't give up. Let's keep doing this thing together. This journey ours together. We're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. With song anew, we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. And so, with that perspective of running the race, Paul says, "I rejoice," and what's even more, you should rejoice. And I just, I laugh here a little bit because it's just Paul just can't get over talking about joy. He can't get over talking about joy because he has that thing that we're through thick and thin. It doesn't, matter. it doesn't matter what the world is doing. We're not the kind of people that hop around from one church to another. We're sticking in here and we're gonna have that joy of long obedience in the same direction together for the next several decades to come. That's what the Philippians were enjoying with Paul and that's what we're called to enjoy as well. And so Paul just keeps talking about this joy. Last 48 verses, over two months, we've gone through two pages in my Bible in two months, and we've seen joy just keeps popping up over and over. Let me remind you of what he said. Paul rejoices when he thinks about the Philippians 1.4. He rejoices when he thinks about his ministry that he is in, even though it's bringing suffering where he's in prison. The praetorian guard is hearing about Jesus, and those who are trying to spite Paul, people are still hearing about Jesus. So Paul rejoices. Paul rejoices when he calls for your church unity in 2.2. And again, here he's calling for mutual rejoicing between him and the Philippians as they share in ministry that includes suffering together. Real joy is this, according to Gordon Fee. I, I think this just nails it on the head. Joy in suffering, it should finally be noted, is not delight in feeling badly. Rather, it is predicated on the unshakable foundation of the work of Christ, both past and future, Joy has nothing to do with circumstances, but everything to do with one's place in Christ. If I haven't said this before, let me remind you once again, your joy is not based on how you feel about yourself or what others have said about you or what circumstance you may find yourself in. Your joy is founded on the eternal status of being found in Jesus Christ and his humiliating death on a Roman cross. Nothing can change that. You can rejoice regardless of your situation because you have a status of being in Christ Jesus. And you can be able to say, whom do I have in in heaven and there is nothing on earth I Desire besides you. My flesh might fail. My wife might have meningitis and be in the hospital. I may have problems with my children. Because of my faith, my relationship with my friends and my family may be strained. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when we die, we can all say these words throughout these momentary afflictions that we will gain so much more. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I can say, this life is just a vapor. We're almost home. The sun is setting yonder. We're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes. We're almost home. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message.